Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome back to the show. As always, we are delighted to have you join us. Well, as is often the case, the court saves its most exciting cases for the end of the term, and that rule has held true this week. We have five opinions to talk about. Now, by my count, we still have eight more to go, so theoretically we could be done next week. But enough about next week. Let's talk about this week. We have five cases, again, including some of the juicy ones that I know we've all been waiting for. And without further ado, first up is Espinoza. So several years ago, Montana created a $150 tax credit that you could get if you donated money to an organization that then provided scholarships to qualifying students who attended private schools. Montana has a provision in its constitution, though, that prohibits the state from providing aid to religious organizations. These provisions are pretty common. Over 30 states have them in their constitutions, and they're called Blaine Amendments after the former Speaker of the House, James Blaine, who tried and failed to amend the Constitution to get such a provision in there. Three mothers who wanted to take advantage of this program to send their kids to private religious schools filed suit when they were stopped from doing so. And after the lawsuit winded its way through the state courts, the Montana Supreme Court said that the entire program had to be scrapped. The issue before the court was whether a state violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment when it invalidates a generally available student aid program simply because this program affords students the choice of attending a religious school. The case uh, turned out to be 5-4, written by the Chief Justice, joined by the court's four conservatives, and the court held that, yes, it does violate the free exercise clause. The court hewed pretty closely to its 2017 decision in Trinity Lutheran, holding that excluding religious schools from public benefits simply because they are religious schools violates the free exercise clause. There were a lot of opinions uh, in this case, so we'll go through them briefly. Thomas, joined by Gorsuch, uh, wrote separately to uh, encourage the court to clean up its messy establishment clause jurisprudence, which he argued permits the government to discriminate against religious institutions. Justice Alito wrote separately explaining the history of these Blaine Amendments, that they were originally enacted as bigoted anti-Catholic laws, and to explain why that discriminatory animus matters today and can't be ignored. Justice Gorsuch wrote separately, stating his belief that the majority's distinction between the religious status of participating schools and the religious use of the scholarship money was irrelevant. Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent that was joined by Kagan, where she said eliminating the entire program, which is what the Montana Supreme Court did, cured any religious discrimination. Justice Breyer, joined also in part by Kagan, wrote a dissenting opinion arguing that a context-specific approach was needed so that judges can weigh the context, consequences, and purpose. Uh, And then Justice Sotomayor, in what is becoming a, a trend of hers, wrote a dissent joined by no other justice, arguing that interests embodied in the religion clauses, whatever those are, not entirely clear, permits the government some room to single out and exclude religious organizations. So there you have it. The takeaway, I think, from these cases is it's good to see the court standing up for religious freedom, but this case raises for me two concerns. The first is that this should not have been a hard case. The fact that it was 5-4 
and very narrowly fought reveals just how warped the court's religious clauses jurisprudence has become over the years and how badly it needs a top-to-bottom overhaul. And second, I think that Thomas is absolutely right. The court's establishment clause jurisprudence is a disaster, and it has encouraged governments to do exactly what the First Amendment is designed to prevent, which is discriminate against religion. The court uh, ultimately refused to consider uh, establishment clause arguments that petitioners made in this case, which is too bad. They forfeited an opportunity to fix or, or at least give some clarity to that jurisprudence. One of the other big opinions to be released this week was in June Medical Services v. Russo, which involved a Louisiana statute requiring doctors who perform abortions to obtain admitting privileges at a hospital. When the court decided to hear this case, many conservatives and pro-life advocates were excited. They had high hopes that the court would use this as an opportunity to overturn its 2016 decision in Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstadt, where a 5-4 majority struck down a very similar Texas statute. Justice Kennedy was the deciding vote in that case, and of course he has since been replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. The simple math seemed to point to whole women's health being overturned. However, this week, Chief Justice Roberts unexpectedly pulled the rug out from under the conservative wing of the court. In a very narrow 5-4 decision, the court reversed the Fifth Circuit's earlier ruling and struck down the Louisiana law as unconstitutional. Justice Breyer's plurality opinion, which was joined by Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, relied very heavily on whole women's health and said that the Louisiana law was virtually identical to the Texas law struck down in that case. Chief Justice Roberts concurred in the judgment but did not join in that plurality opinion. Even though he reiterated his belief that whole woman's health was wrongly decided, he declined to overturn this precedent based on stare decisis, stating his belief that the Texas and Louisiana statutes were virtually identical and that this case therefore required the same result as that of whole woman's health. Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Alito, and Kavanaugh all wrote dissenting opinions in this case. There were many consistent themes from these dissents, including the assertion that the physician plaintiffs in this case lacked standing to bring claims on behalf of their patients. Both Alito and Kavanaugh argued that the court, both today and in Whole Woman's Health, misapplied the undue burden standard adopted in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Justice Gorsuch's dissent focused more broadly on what he viewed as the court's misapplication of numerous doctrines, including the deference ordinarily afforded to legislative findings and the need to limit judicial review to the parties most affected by a law. Justice Thomas, for his part, took direct aim at the court's abortion-related precedents in general, arguing that they are, quote, grievously wrong and should be overruled. Now, I have many thoughts on what happened with the Chief Justice here, who once again handed the court's liberal wing a much-needed fifth vote in a contentious case where conservatives thought that simple math would hand them a victory. His argument for abiding by stare decisis here is a bit confusing. Recall, whole women's health is only four years old. He thought it was wrongly decided at the time, and he still apparently believes it is wrongly decided. He has also in recent years voted to overturn much more long-standing and deeply entrenched precedent in cases like Janice and Nick. 
It's also confusing because if the chief just wanted to uphold the law while still protecting the court's image of being non-political, he could have done so by simply dismissing the case on standing grounds. Again, standing was a big issue in this case and was brought up by the dissenting justices quite often. This would not have been the first time, even this term, that the chief would have gotten around a contentious ruling on the merits by getting rid of the case on procedural technicalities. That is indeed what happened earlier this term in New York State rifle and pistol. So overall, just a very confusing and inconsistent approach by the chief this term and a very disappointing result for pro-life advocates. Amy, I wanted to highlight an amusing parody, I suppose, of Justice Roberts's approach here by Casey Maddox. Casey Maddox is a well-known First Amendment lawyer. And he said, imagine this, you turn to your child and you say, what do you say when you've made a mistake? And your child responds, it was a mistake, but I won't apologize for it because you've come to rely on my mistakes. And if I stop making them, you won't respect me. (laughs) That seems to be a pretty accurate assessment in this case. I appreciate that. Next up is Sela Law. The issue in Sela Law was whether the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau structure violates the separation of powers, and if so, what to do about it. So, by way of background, 2010, Congress passes and President Obama signed Dodd-Frank, which, among other things, created the CFPB to enforce consumer protection laws. Dodd-Frank structured the CFPB in a unique way. It put it under the control of a single director who served a five-year term and could only be removed by the president for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. The petitioner, Sela Law, challenged an investigatory action that the CFPB launched against it on the grounds that this organizational structure is unconstitutional. It argued that the director must be accountable to the president, or else he or she is impermissibly wielding the executive power. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the 5-4 majority, agreed with that argument, stating that, quote, the executive power belongs to the president, and that power generally includes the ability to supervise and remove the agents who wield executive power in his stead. While the four conservatives joined this essential holding, Thomas and Gorsuch did not join the portion of the opinion in which the court held that this part of Dodd-Frank can be severed from the rest of the bill so that the CFPB doesn't have to be struck down in its entirety. Thomas argued that the proper remedy in this case was simply to deny the CFPB the ability to enforce its investigative demand against SELA law. The judicial power, he said, is limited to pronouncing judgments in the case at hand, does not include the power to exercise, erase, alter, or otherwise strike down a statute. Kagan, joined by the other three liberals, wrote that the CFPB structure was constitutional. In her view, the Constitution gives Congress the ability to structure administrative institutions as the times demand, with the only limitation that the president retains the ability to carry out his constitutional duties. Those four did, however, agree that this portion of Dodd-Frank was severable, so the CFPB survives. The takeaway from this case is that it's a step in the right direction in terms of enhancing the separation of powers and the president's ability to set administration policy and to control who gets to enforce that policy. Presidents, after all, are politically accountable, but the agency heads are not. There will likely be challenges in the future to actions taken by the CFPB. I think next up uh, will be its uh, financing structure. Remember, the CFPB doesn't get funding through the appropriations process. It gets it straight from the Treasury. So the next challenge uh, will be on that grounds. 
And that's it for CFPB. The court also issued an opinion in the First Amendment case of USAID v. Alliance for Open Society International. In 2013, the court held that it was unconstitutional for USAID to require American organizations who receive federal funds to have policies explicitly opposing sex trafficking and prostitution. This case challenged whether that same policy was unconstitutional as applied to the foreign affiliates of those American organizations. In an opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Roberts, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, the court held that the policy is not unconstitutional as applied to the foreign affiliates, since foreign citizens outside U.S. territory do not possess First Amendment rights under the U.S. Constitution. Moreover, these foreign affiliates are separate legal entities with distinct legal rights and obligations, and their speech is not attributable to the American petitioners. Justice Breyer was joined in dissent by Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. They argued that the speech of the legally separate but clearly identified foreign affiliates should be attributed to the American petitioners for purposes of the First Amendment. Justice Kagan did not participate in the consideration of this case. And last up, Booking.com. The issue in Booking.com was whether a generic word like booking can be trademarked by adding .com to the end of it. In an opinion by Justice Ginsburg, the court held that it can be trademarked if consumers don't think of it as generic. This was another win for a friend of the show, Lisa Blatt, who has argued more cases before the high court than any other woman. This was her 40th argument before the Supreme Court and her 37th win with one case pending. So congratulations to Lisa. Giancarlo, I, I hope she was sitting at the same table uh, where she argued this case virtually before the court, because if I remember, this was actually the first teleconferenced one, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. So she, she gets the win in the first teleconference oral argument in Supreme Court history. <laughs> congratulations, Lisa Blatt. Now, on this show, we enjoy reading the final product of the judicial process, that is, their opinions, but we also like to get to know the people who write them. So this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Judge Daniel Bress, who is about to celebrate his one-year anniversary on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I have the pleasure today to be on the line with Judge Daniel Bress of the Ninth Circuit. Judge Bress, uh, next month, will celebrate his one year on the bench. Judge, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. So, Judge, before we get into uh, you know your career history, I want to walk our listeners through your resume because I think you have. You know, I meet a lot of very impressive people in my line of work, but you might have the shiniest resume I've ever seen. <laughs> I'd highly doubt that, actually, but I'll let you go ahead. <laughs> so. Harvard College undergrad, magna cum laude, UVA, Order of the Coif, clerked for Judge Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, Justice Scalia, worked at two big law firms, including being a partner at Kirkland and & Ellis, and you've been a professor at Columbus University and UVA, and now on the bench. So, an incredible resume. Well, I think you're leaving out all the household chores that I do too, but um, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> so before we unpack your resume, if you wouldn't mind, I would love, Judge, to talk about what made you decide you wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I think my real inspiration for 
at least beginning to think about a career in law actually goes all the way back to the eighth grade in junior high school. I had a really great homeroom teacher. His name was Mr. Ayala, and he uh, he loved uh, American history. He loved American law, and he held every year what was something called the Civics Bowl, where you had to memorize and learn different parts of the Constitution and other aspects of our legal system. And so I guess I would say, if anything, that was really the spark that first got me thinking about a career in law. Did you participate in this Civics Bowl? Sure, everybody did. And I had a huge stack of flashcards, um, you know, that had different questions and answers. And it was about learning different parts of uh, the Constitution, different aspects of uh how the federal government was set up and it was just a great introduction to you know our legal system when i was you know 12 12 years old or so so how did that first uh exposure to civics translate into going to law school well you know i majored in government and then when i was um done with my undergraduate work i decided to go and spend the the year working at the FTC as a paralegal, and I, I got a chance to work on big um, antitrust merger investigations, other kinds of consumer protection work, and being a paralegal was also um, just a terrific experience, and it gave me sort of exposure to the guts of law, you know, interviewing people, digging around in documents, and I found I really liked it, and, and it seemed like the, the thing I'd always wanted to do, and, and that's sort of what made me decide to go forward and apply to law school. So how long between undergrad and law school were you a paralegal? I took a year off. Yeah, I took a year off, and um, and then after that I decided, you know, I think I'd always planned to go to law school, but I, I sort of felt like I wanted to have a year in between, and I always encourage people to do that. If, if anything, I think it's good to take even more time off. So after you, you've been a paralegal for a year and you go to law school, how did law school compare to being a paralegal? Well, you know, law school is a little different than um, the day-to-day work of a lawyer. You know, in, in law school, you're, of course, exposed to so many different areas of law. But, but part of what you're trying to do is, is think a little bit more theoretically about, um, about the different subjects that you encounter. And you see a real range of them in law school, but I love law school. I mean, that was, for me, it was, it sort of clicked for me. I found myself just immersed in it. I loved it. And I sort of knew right away that was, that was the right place for me. And then you went on to clerk for Judge Harvey Wilkinson. Can you tell me about that experience and how it compared to that theoretical um, understanding of the law that you loved in school? Well, I mean, clerking for Judge Wilkinson was just a terrific, life-changing experience. I mean, he he is a, a lifelong mentor to me. He's an incredible writer. He, he had just a real passion um, for law, for all areas of law. He he would pick up a bankruptcy case and become so excited and, and intrigued by it. He would pick up a tax case. He would pick up an environmental case. Everything he touched, he enjoyed. And he had such an enthusiasm for what he was doing. And that that really um, just pervaded the atmosphere in chambers. Uh, it was it was such a fun time. It was such a great year. Do you have any 
particularly fond memories? Any particular experience? Oh, there were so many. I mean, well, yeah, the judge, you probably heard this. Judge Wilkinson was very into running, and he would run three miles a day. And we did this with the clerks. So we did this every day, rain or shine, um, you know, hot August days in Charlottesville, bleak February days, and we did it around a track. And so that was, you know, three miles, 12, 12 quarter mile laps. And it would be the judge. And, and at the time he just had three clerks. One of them was Eric Fagan, my co-clerk, who's now a deputy in the Solicitor General's office, is in charge of the criminal docket. And the other was Eric Murphy, who's now a judge on the Sixth Circuit. So, so I was the weak link here. But anyway, we would, we would go running around the track every day. And the judge, you know, he enjoyed talking about the opinions that, that he was working on and, and that we were helping him with. And we would run around the track and he would, this would happen constantly where he would say, oh, you know, Dan, you know that opinion we're working on, you know, uh, section 1A, here's what I want to say right there at the <laughs> beginning. And then he would just spin out this incredible prose. And of course, we were running around the track. We had no pens or paper. Right. And as soon as we would get back to chambers, we would be in our running clothes. We'd race back to the computer and we'd try to put our heads together and say, do you remember what he, what he said and how he said it? And invariably, it, it was 10 times worse than, than the way he had put it on the track. <laughs> And then, speaking of somebody who can spin prose, you went on to clerk for Justice Scalia. Tell me about that. Well, that was really another honor of a lifetime, you know, both to clerk on the Supreme Court and then especially to clerk for the justice, who who was really just a towering force in law, but also a tremendous uh, person to work for. And, you know, I'm from a small town in California, and there were so many days when I walked into the Supreme Court and thought, you know, this is the greatest country in the world that you can be from a small town in and and be working for a justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. But it was an incredible experience to work for the justice. He um, he had such an incredible legal mind. You know, a, a zero to sixty ability in just seconds. He he could immediately grasp. Um, when you walk into his office and say, Justice, I need to raise something with you, and here's the situation, he, he would get it faster than anybody. And he was a, a, just a beautiful writer and, and someone who took so much care in the work that he did. And it was just an incredible experience to you know, essentially learn at his feet. Do you have a favorite Scalia story? Well, I'll tell you, you know, he was such a craftsman with the opinions and with the writing. And before he would put out an opinion, and this would be after weeks and months of work on it already, he liked to do something that he called booking the opinion, where if you were the clerk and it, and it, was, it was your case, you'd go down to his office and you'd bring everything that was cited in the opinion, every, every case, every statute, every article, anything. And we would have a printout of the, of the opinion and just the two of you, just the two of us would sit there and go through the opinion line by line. And he would, he would read it all out and he would, he would use different intonation. And, and he had a, this was the process he used to sort of just put the finishing touches on it. And some of these were opinions that were majorities and, and some were partial conclusions. And I didn't know what it was. It was, it was the same approach every time. I, I just tremendously respected that. But of course there was, you know, there were funny times, uh, too. I mean, I, 
the justice had a former clerk named Rick Bress, same last name as me, but, but we're not related. And I remember uh, when I started the clerkship, the justice called me and said, hey, how's Rick doing? <laughs> uh, I said, justice, I don't, I don't know who Rick is. And I just knew that the, uh, the look on his face must have been, you know, oh my goodness, I've made a, a terrible, terrible <laughs> mistake. Um, but yes, he, he was just, he was, a, he was a lot of laughs. He, he was funny, really funny person. Um, and very spontaneous too. So besides Judge Wilkinson and Justice Scalia, do you have any other mentors in your career? I have been so lucky in my career to, um, to have met and to come into contact with people who were always supportive and who, um, who just taught me a great deal. I mean, I guess one person I would mention is Lillian Bevere, who is a professor at the University of Virginia uh, School of Law. She was my property professor. I became her research assistant and she was, she was very rigorous. The exams were very difficult, but she, she cared so much about law and she cared so much about the principles underlying law, the rationales underlying law. And over the years, she became a very close friend and mentor. And she was so humble. She had, she herself had had an incredible uh, career. She had made enormous contributions to academia and, um, and yet she had such a love of students trying to um, learn what, what they were interested in, trying to help them in their careers, trying to um, see them grow as lawyers. And so I'm, she's somebody I'll always be indebted to uh, among many others. So tell me, changing gears here, what was it like going from law school to the clerkships and then into private practice? You know, when I, when I left the clerkships, I thought, oh, I, I want to go to law firms, and I thought maybe that would be um, something I would do for a few years. It turned out that it was uh, just a really good fit for me. Both of the firms I was really proud to work, work for, the first Munger Tolls, and then really where I spent the bulk of my career at Kirkland Ellis. Uh, I love both places. I mean, Munger, uh, I wasn't there nearly as long, but I made so many close friends there, including several who are now colleagues of mine on the court, Judge um, Watford, Judge Friedland, and and Judge Collins. I, I got to know each of them um, in private practice and worked with them. Um, they later came onto this court, and, and so it was fun to come onto this court and know them. And then Kirkland, where I spent most of my career, it was just a very good place for me. It was a really entrepreneurial, rewarding, exhilarating place to work. There were really challenging cases. There were uh, some of the biggest legal problems were, were things that I was working on. And it was a place that um, essentially threw you in, you know, and you had to, you had to learn how to practice law really quickly. But, but again, it was such a... Um, it was such an exciting place to work because of all the different um, opportunities that, that we had there. What kind of law did you practice? I was basically a general civil litigator. So I did, um, you know, I did some appellate work and had that training from my clerkships, but I also did a lot of work in trial courts, uh, both federal and state. And I don't, I wouldn't say I had any, any kind of specialty. In fact, I, I was sort of averse to that, but I did a lot of complex civil litigation. I did a fair amount of work in um, the class action context. 
business disputes, um, you name it, it was sort of what clients needed done. That was, you know, uh, we like to consider ourselves, I like to consider myself for the, someone who could do, you know, pretty much anything. And that was, that was the fun thing about it. There no, no case was the same. And while you were managing your practice at Kirkland, you also were an adjunct professor, right? I was, yeah. My wife always teased me and said, you know, this is what you want to do with your weeks off is to go go teach um, go teach a class. But yeah, I really, I taught at both UVA where I went to law school and then at uh, the Columbus School of Law, which is affiliated with Catholic University in D.C. and um, taught several times at both institutions. Just terrific experience both times, all times. What did you teach? I taught a class that um, I actually developed with a professor at UVA, Micah Schwartzman, who was, he was my law school study partner, and then he became a, a full professor at UVA. We, the class was, was called Textualism and its Critics, and it was a class we designed that was essentially examining textualism as a method of statutory interpretation, and it, it began with the question, what is textualism? And 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 over the course of the class, what we examined were what is textualism, what are the justifications for it, what are the arguments against it, and we read pieces from some of it was academic pieces, but some of it was was cases. And you know, it was it was Breyer, Posner, Scalia, Easterbrook, um, John Manning, Caleb Nelson. We it was designed to give students sort of an introduction to that whole discipline of statutory interpretation. I'd love to see the reading list for that class. When it was the greatest I, hit, you know, and it was, <laughs> it was fun because there was always new material that was available every year. And mm -hmm. um, that's what made it fun because it was, you know, that there's so many of the cases are themselves have so many um, rich case studies about how to, how to do statutory interpretation. So it was, it was, um, I looked forward to it. You know, sometimes I did it in a block. Sometimes I did it, you know, I taught once a week and it was always something I looked forward to every single time. So how did you find the transition from private practice teaching to the bench? You know, I would say it was a pretty easy transition. I mean, I'm, I'm so fortunate. The, what I do now um, is really the job of a lifetime. I mean, I, I loved being a lawyer. I, uh, it was something that, fit me very well, but what I get to do now every single day is something I also love doing, which is essentially writing, reading, thinking, talking about law. Uh, I get to work in every area of the law, which, you know, is a little different from private practice where you're um, maybe a little more focused in certain, certain areas that your clients may need assistance in. But it's a very satisfying thing to be a part of the federal judiciary and to have colleagues who are so dedicated to this uh, mission. And of course, to work with clerks. I was a law clerk myself. I, it was a formative experience for me. And so it's, it's sort of nice to be on the other side and to work with younger lawyers and to see them grow. It's been really uh, quite memorable, actually. Do you have any traditions that you've established with your, uh, I assume you're on your first batch of clerks? Yeah, I'm on the first batch of clerks and um, about to cycle them out and start with the second. You know, we do have lunch every day. That's a big, a big thing for me. You know, I think in private practice, I tried to avoid eating at my desk because it, it just wasn't something that fit me. And 
here with my clerks, I like us to all take a break and, and to go sit in the conference room and to have lunch and to just talk about whatever's on our mind. And sometimes it's the work we're doing, but sometimes it's just other things and fun things. But, you know, we also are lucky to have chambers here in, in the city of San Francisco. And one thing I like to do if it's a nice day out, and to be honest with you, most days are pretty nice here. We <laughs> we like to change out of the out of the suits and put on some walking clothes and we'll go and take a walk in uh, some of the neighborhoods here in the city. And you know, there are a lot of parts of the city that, that tourists go frequently, but, but the real heart of it is in the neighborhoods. And many people don't know this, but there are staircases all over the city. Some are obvious, but many are not. And there's a wonderful book, which is called Stairway Walks of San Francisco. And my son got me very into this. And sometimes I'll take the clerks and we'll, we'll head out and take a you know two or three mile walk in the hills and you know, you can be on, you can be just 10 minutes from chambers here and, and be on top of the hill seeing the Golden Gate Bridge or just amazing panoramic views of the bays, Marin, Sausalito, Alcatraz, the Port of Oakland, Twin Peaks, maybe on a clear day, even the Farallon Islands out in the ocean. And, you know, I have clerks who who come here from, um, at least this year, from all over the country, but many of them are not from the West Coast. So it's fun to show people who aren't from here just some of the beauties of this part of the country. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to young lawyers and aspiring lawyers? You know, I, I think to me, it's really, really three things. The first is to focus on your craft. The, to my mind, at least the legal profession is not like something like, uh, I'll just give an example, like singing, where you may have an incredible natural talent at a younger age. To me, there are no meteors in law. You have to really work at this. And and I, and I so that would be the first thing. The, the second would be to look for opportunities, you know, to look for at-bats, to, to find ways to get those arguments to be to be the principal in something, to, to take the lead on a depth, to take the lead on an expert. Um, when it's really on you as a lawyer, um, I think that's that's where the there's a little bit of pressure. There's more pressure, but that's also where the excitement is. And then the last I would say is not to be too limited, you know, in, in what you want to do. Sometimes you, you get exposed to something that you realize um, that you hadn't thought would be really interesting to you. And then it turns out that it's something that you really like. And so sometimes, you know, students either go to law school or they come out of law school thinking, I definitely want to do this, or I definitely want to do that. And my advice is to keep an open mind and to see, you know, what, what else might interest you. That's definitely been true in my experience. Well, Judge, there's one last question that we ask all our guests. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, for me, that one's an easy one because it would be Justice Scalia. And, um, you know, the, the really more to just say thank you. You know, the there's always a real bond, I think, between clerks and the judge or the justice and you know that was certainly true in the Scalia chambers I mean we had a real bond with him and with each other it was a real shared experience and when I left the clerkship you know I, I tried to say thank you he would have very little of it and he said you know I should be thanking you but we would see each other from time to time over the years we had annual reunions and, and then of course he passed away very suddenly and unexpectedly and so there really was no time to to just tell him um 
what a great influence he was and, and what an important person he was in each of our lives. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are things I would want to ask him about this job. Um, but in some sense, I, I think I maybe would know the answer. It would be more an opportunity just to be able to see him and to, to have some of those old uh, fun conversations and to, to maybe trade war stories of uh, <laughs> some of the older days. Well, Judge, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it's my privilege and, and pleasure. I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to have Judge Bress on the show. We'll be very excited to see his judicial star rise. Next up on the show, we have our trivia portion. While we don't have Paul Arkin back with us today, we do have Amy getting the opportunity to stump John Carlo with, appropriately, some religious liberty trivia. All right, you have to be nice to me because I'm about 100 IQ points short of Paul Larkin. Aren't we all? (laughs) All right, first up in religious liberty trivia. One of the most famous religious liberty cases in the modern era is the 1993 case of Lukumi Bablu I v. Hialeah. This case dealt with a city ordinance prohibiting what practice observed by the church's members— Bonus points if you can tell me the official name of the church's religion. Okay, I, I don't know if this is the whole official name, but it's the Church of Santorini. Is that right? So Santorini is an island off the coast of Greece. <laughs> you were close. You know, uh, I it knew is it the Santeria. I said it. The Santeria, Santeria religion. That's right, that's right. And the practice is animal sacrifices. <laughs> I I think since you got ritual animal sacrifice right, I'm not going to give you Santorini. (laughs) The city ordinance prohibited ritual animal sacrifice for religious purposes. The Santeria religion is a syncretism of Catholicism and native Yoruba religion. And adherents believe that ritual animal sacrifice is necessary to receive the aid of spiritual beings called Orishas. A unanimous Supreme Court ultimately concluded that the city's ordinance banning religious sacrifice of animals failed strict scrutiny and violated the free exercise clause. All right, moving on to your second question. Are you ready? I'm ready. The court first addressed the First Amendment's protection of religious liberties in the 1878 case of Reynolds v. United States holding that religious duty was not a defense to a criminal indictment. For what offense was the criminal indictment in this case? It was bigamy. That is correct. George Reynolds was a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, known colloquially as the Mormon Church, and was charged with bigamy under the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act. Reynolds believed it was his duty as a male member of the church to practice polygamy, and had requested that the jury be instructed to find him not guilty if it found he committed bigamy only because his religion commanded it. Two fun for fact. Two. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, we, we've got a fun fact. Please. I was going to say fun fact. There are several challenges to anti-bigamy laws winding their way through the district courts right now in light of the Supreme Court's opinions in some of the gay marriage cases. Moving on to your third question. In a 1983 case... The Supreme Court held that the religion clauses of the First Amendment did not prohibit the IRS from revoking the tax-exempt status of a religious university whose practices are contrary to a compelling government policy. What was the university, and what was the university policy at issue? 
Ah, okay. Mm. Do you need a hint about the university? Yeah, give me a hint. So this is a non-denominationally affiliated university in Greenville, South Carolina. You know, I don't know. So the case was Bob Jones University, the United States. Uh, so clearly Bob Jones University. And the policy was a ban on interracial dating and marriage for students which the university argued was based on a genuine religious belief that the Bible forbids the practice. And the Supreme Court upheld that IRS revocation of that tax-exempt status. Question number four. Bob Jones University continued its policy of forbidding interracial dating and marriage amongst its students until what year? Oh, wow. Well... Since I was not familiar with the first question, I confess I, am, I have no idea what the answer is to this one. Fair. So the, the answer is until 2000. It maintained that policy until 2000. The policy change was prompted uh, when a visit by presidential candidate George W. Bush brought the policy back to the national forefront. The university, by the way, did not receive its tax-exempt status back until 2017. Wow. All right, John Carlo, are you ready for your final question? I am. Hit me. So we're going back to something that you brought up already in the case summaries. The Blaine Amendment. 37 states currently have some form of what is known as a Blaine Amendment prohibiting government funding of religious schools. Congressman James G. Blaine, for whom the amendments are named, initially proposed the constitutional amendment to this effect after being inspired by a speech by which president? Interesting. Um, so given when these things happened, I'm going to guess Woodrow Wilson, but Ooh. I'm not sure about that. Would it help if I said it was an 1875 speech? Oh, much, much older. Okay. Um, well, my, my uh, historical knowledge of the presidents pretty much fades into murky nothing before 1900, so I don't know. The answer is Ulysses S. Grant. Interesting. President okay, give Grant. me the backstory behind that. So Blaine proposed the federal amendment after hearing an 1875 speech by President Grant at a veterans meeting in which he called for a constitutional amendment prohibiting the use of public money for sectarian schools. Blaine's proposed amendment, as you suggested uh, way back in your case summary, the beginning of this episode, passed in the House but failed in the Senate by four votes and did not get passed or enacted into the Constitution. So there you have it. There is our trivia for the day. I hope everyone, including John Carler, learned quite a bit about <laughs> some of the religious liberty cases. Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. 
Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.